Gospels to Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, uh, I, uh, pastor gave an update about Union and just gave me maybe just a little update about North Brooklyn, which is two blocks down the street on West Street. And uh, God has been good to us down there. We had some lesser attended services with the, after the, during the storm and after the storm, but God is starting to bring some people back in, so we thank the Lord for that. We've had some visitors, some returning visitors, and so uh, our meetings are still humble, but God is working there in people's lives, and uh, we're definitely so, so, it's a so much different scenario than where we were, I just think back to when we started, and just not knowing anyone, not knowing anything, and it's so different now, every time we go out, every time we go on visitation, we see somebody we know, someone we're, we're uh, maybe that's a prospect, or someone who's visited, or um, we're, we're getting much more well-known in the neighborhood and went to a community board meeting the other night. And I try to catch those when I can and, uh, you know, usually meet somebody there that I know uh, every, single, um, every single time. So it's a blessing to be kind of recognized in the neighborhood. And now we can be a little more public with what's going on with the building and people see, oh, like it's actually happening. Like you, because before we say we're starting a church, they'll catch you like you're nuts. And uh, then when they actually see that God's doing something and doing something quite miraculous, it's a great testimony. And so I praise the Lord for that and ask you to continue to pray. I still believe this year we're going to have our first baptisms, our first members. And so please pray for us about that, if you would, there at North Brooklyn Baptist Church. And the timing just couldn't be better with all this. Uh, I took the men around today, gave them a little short tour of Greenpoint. And if you know the area at all, uh, West Street runs from Quay Street. That's just near the Bushwick Inlet and runs all the way to the Newtown Creek. That whole area is nothing but demolished buildings and green fences because that whole area was rezoned in 2005. It used to be warehouses all the way down the waterfront. And now it's, well, if you're familiar with Hunter's Point and what happened there, just think that in Greenpoint, but taller. Uh, so we're going to have 11,000 new housing units, uh, which basically means about 20 to 25,000 new people in the neighborhood. Uh, and then they're going to build a walking bridge over the Newtown Creek when all that's done to connect us to Hunter's Point. So that's another 30,000 people we're going to have access to, 15,000 in those new towers. So it's like now or never. When we talk about miracles and God doing things on time, um, if in, in 10 years, trying to get into Greenpoint would be like trying to get into Midtown. So it's going to be, it's a huge opportunity and the timing just couldn't be better. And I'm excited. I'm glad I'm in a place where more people are coming. And uh, we're going to be... Um, I appreciate the momentum of a church plant, but I'm also excited about the day when we're going to go from the newest church in the neighborhood to the second oldest. That's going to be pretty exciting. And, uh, and go from our third year anniversary to 170. Let's see. I think 2017 would be 170 year anniversary. So um, that's pretty exciting when you think about it. And uh, when you think about how an established church, um, it just has, uh, well, our neighborhood is predominantly Polish. And so when you tell them you meet in a factory building, that pretty much means you're not a church. They're, you're like a wacko, you know, and uh, they just look at you like you're crazy. And um, so I'm just glad for what God is doing. And we still have excitement and momentum in the factory building. And I, I enjoy it uh, uh, every single time that we meet there. It's exciting. And if you can believe it, we're already making plans for Easter, the end of next month. Yikes. Uh, but we're going to try to make it a good one and get some uh, special materials printed and uh, try to. We want to have our best attendance we've ever had this Easter, so pray for us if you will. 
Well, I want to make a statement tonight, and I think I'm, I'm expecting to get a lot of agreement, so we'll see. The streets of New York are filled with angry people. All right, I see smiles, I see heads going up and down. The streets of New York are filled with angry people. But we have guests here with us tonight, so I don't want to give them the wrong impression about New Yorkers. Because before you judge and think all New Yorkers are ang- angry, I want you to know this. that, uh, Or if, before you make the judgment, oh yeah, the, all those people, they're angry. I want you to understand this. New Yorkers have a lot to be angry about. Sometimes people have to, oh, why is everyone mad? Well, we got a lot to be mad about. <laughs> why is everyone angry? We've got a lot to be angry about. Of course, you know, it's, I always say to them, when you see our, people's faces on the sidewalk, just look at people's faces the next time you're on the highway. You know, they don't look any happier than these people here. It's just they're walking around and those people are in their car. But we have a lot to be angry about. We have cyclists, and I'm a cyclist. But, you know, they have cyclists. I almost got hit by one t- tonight. We have trucks that we're trying to get around. We have people walking against the light on the crosswalk. We have people shoving us on the subway and not being considerate of other people when they prepare their hygiene in the morning. We have a lot to be angry about. It's not that we're mad. We're not mad. There's just plenty to frustrate us. And what I like about exploring the biblical world And the more I um, study it, the more I study the people and the characters of it, is I find that their experiences are so much like ours. That the time is different, the technology is different, but people are people in any time and culture. And the frustrations that we have in life are the same frustrations that are, are present in the biblical world and are addressed in the pages of Scripture. And so Jesus, in our in our text that we're going to read in Matthew chapter 5 tonight, addresses anger. So in his time, people were dealing with anger. In our time, people are dealing with anger. Let me ask you this. Is anger in and of itself sinful? Is there ever a time where anger is appropriate? Is there, what's the line? What's the, what's the test? How do we know when our anger is righteous and when it goes to being unrighteous? And the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Where does one start, when does, where does one stop and the other start? When does being angry okay? And where does the sin begin? Well, Jesus addresses that with his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. And when he deals with anger, um, he, addre- he addresses uh, how these things um, are defined. So let's look at it in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 21. Matthew 5, verse 21. Ye have heard it said, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Who said that? Anybody know? God to Moses, Ten Commandments, right? Written in stone. Shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoso shall say to his brother, Raka, that's like saying you're mindless. You're empty-headed. You're an idiot. Shall be in danger of the council. But whoso shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and thou rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, verse 24, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, 
whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for tonight, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. And Lord, anger is one of many natural impulses that we have. Lord, you've uh, transformed us, you've changed us by the power of the gospel. And I pray in this area of our life we would be submitted to you, that we would be submitted to the change that can come as we are your disciples. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So it's pretty easy to agree with Jesus when he talks about murder there. And that's how he sets it up. Jesus is good at setting up ideas and then coming in with the truth, you know, kind of setting you up uh, for the truth that he's going to present uh, in his uh, in his in the in the sermons that he delivers. He says that you've heard it said thou shalt not kill. And we all say yes. okay. when we're talking about uh, killing, you you should not kill. But then he makes a drastic jump and he and he talks about if thou shalt not kill, you'll be if you kill, you'll be in danger of judgment as in criminal penalty. And then he makes a jump to, but if you hate, you're going to be in danger of the same judgment or even worse judgment. So that's a pretty big leap. So let's first deal with, let's deal with that first one. Thou shalt not kill. Now, so a lot of people use thou shalt not kill to justify uh, thinking that is, is not what the verse intended at all. When we think about Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, when you look at what God was doing in the life of the children of Israel, when he was sending them off to war, thou shalt not kill, you can't say... That war is wrong because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. Right? That the people do that all the time. War is wrong because thou shalt not kill. Well, right after they got these words, they went off to war. Okay? So it's not, the, the context just defines that that is not what the verse is saying. The idea and the context around it is simply implying premeditated murder. Premeditated murder is killing as defined in Exodus chapter 13. It's not the death penalty. God had the death penalty there within their own society. He would not contradict himself if that were the case. People say, we need to abolish the death penalty. Why? Because Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 says, thou shalt not kill. And isn't it amazing out there in the press world that we have today that for any pet cause, uh, no matter how radical it is, just wait, and sure enough, behind the podium comes somebody with a backwards collar on, right? You see, like, you can always find a minister of some kooky church out there to support just about any belief uh, that, that people have. Now, listen, to, to be that minister, uh, you, can, you, can get a, you can get a full-fledged doctorate and ordination for about 20 bucks on the Internet, okay? And it'll come in a really nice, uh, you know, nice, you get a nice certificate. They'll send you a free backwards collar shirt, your first one free. Uh, you know, they'll give you everything that you need, the little sash, and you will look like a credentialed professional minister. Okay, so uh, not everyone that stands that, and I'm sure you already know this, but not everyone that stands up and claims to be speaking for God is. Amen. And so many ministers will stand up, uh, or they'll they'll parade a, a minister for hire, if you will, up uh, in those kind of cases. But a lot of times you hear Exodus 20:13 thrown around um, when it's and just ignoring its context. But the context there is premeditated murder. That there is a time and a place for death, unfortunately, um, and there is a time for the death penalty, and there is a time for war. The comparison that Jesus is, uses, though, is to anger. Now that's pretty serious. That's a huge jump. How can murder and anger be the same thing? And how can the consequences be the same? Well, let's first look at what anger is. 
Anger, as defined uh, in the Eastern Bible Dictionary, the emotion of instant displeasure on account of something evil that presents itself to our view. In itself, it is an original susceptibility of our nature, just as love is. It is not necessarily sinful. It may, however, become sinful when causeless or excessive or protracted. It talks about in the Bible that God is angry with the wicked every day. You think you're mad about that dirty billboard, about that person walking through Times Square, about those people making all that noise outside in the wee hours of the morning? No, you're frustrated with it. God is angry with it. He is angry with the wicked every day. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Be ye angry and sin not. That there is a time for anger, but that anger is not a justification for sin. Psalm, I, I, I just mentioned it there, Psalm 7, verse 11. God judges the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. But there can also be times when anger is wrong. I did a little reading about anger, and I've kind of been doing some reading lately about um, kind of our, our thought life and how our thoughts can affect uh, our, our emotional well-being and, and things like that, and even our physical well-being. And I find it absolutely amazing that, you know, we can have um, some sort of outside, uh, for example, I can get pricked by a pin on my hand. And that prick, although it not only does it cause a tiny little hole in my hand, but it does more than that. There's a huge chemical reaction that happens in my body. That instant, maybe a tiny little shot of adrenaline uh, and different chemical things are happening within me. I'm scared. I'm frightened. It, it hurts, right? And all that's happening in just a second. But it's amazing that the same sort of physical effect that can come from someone pricking you with a pin, you're actually feeling probably right now some of those same symptoms just by thinking about the idea of someone pricking you with a pin. I mean, it's absolutely incredible the way God has designed us to where our mind, our, our, our spirits and our soul and our body, uh, although they're distinct, yet there's some unity between them. There's some sort of interdependency between them that we probably won't fully understand until we get to heaven. And just how the, the, the thought of getting pricked with a pin is, causes all sorts of reactions in our body, anger does as well. That when we get angry, we set off a chain reaction to where we no longer have control of our thoughts, but we have no longer have control of our emotions and even our physical well-being. Have you ever got so angry that you start shaking? Those are not fun times, right? I mean, you're just so angry. Just somebody hold me back, right? Angry. Uh, Dr. Uh, Walter Cannon from uh, Harvard University, yeah, his description of anger, the symptoms of anger, uh, more precisely, respiration deepens, the heart beats more rapidly, the uh, pressure, blood pressure rises, there's, um, the blood uh, shifts from the stomach and the intestines to the heart, the central nervous system is affected, the muscles, um, sugar is freed from the reserves stored in the liver, the spleen contracts, discharges its contents, uh, adrenaline is secreted, whoa! All because of a thought. All because of a thought. And because of that thought, that, re- that carnal reaction can completely dominate our entire body and leave us paralyzed in its wake. Anger, as defined here, it goes further into the context. It goes, or it goes further into its definition because it has the idea of malicious anger. You see that there in the text as it relates to uh, your brother and hating them without a cause. Um, being danger of judgment, calling him breaka or calling them a, calling him a fool. There's malicious intent with it. That anger is without justification. It has malicious or could we say violent intent. 
Anger can be used not only for malicious reasons, but anger can be used to elevate oneself. I often find when I say something like, you dummy or you moron or something like that, especially on the road while driving, uh, confessions of a New York City driver here, that part of when I say that is what I'm saying. Not only am I saying what you did is wrong, but if it was me, I would have done it right. Right? Usually, not only am I putting down someone's wrong, but I'm justifying myself in some sort of way. And, uh, you know, most of the time I am right about that. No, I'm just kidding. But anger usually carries with it that idea of not only putting down someone else, but exalting oneself. Of getting, of, because anger, although it, it takes over your body, it's also kind of gratifying. Because adrenaline in and of itself is gratifying. And it makes you feel good about yourself and it makes you kind of feel alive a little bit. And a lot of um, what politicians are doing right now is they're trying to cement a nomination and eventual presidency is they're trying to get you angry about something. And they all have their different causes. So they're not really trying to get you happy about anything. Most people don't have big smiles on their faces. It's, you know, be mad about this and be mad at that person. And why? They're trying to evoke, invoke a, an emotional response. They want you angry. And anger can not only um, have malicious intent or violent action, it can, it can elevate ourselves. And finally, it can prolong a bad situation. That when anger is involved in a situation, usually the situation is probably very easily resolved. But anger can prolong the problem. That if anger wasn't there, the situation, what, what may have been a, just a small conflict, can be dealt with quite quickly. So what kind of anger is wrong? Anger is wrong when it is directed at an individual with an, an intent to cause malicious harm, when it is used to exalt ourselves and belittle someone else, and when it stops the process of reconciliation, when things can't be made right. And this idea, why does this matter? Because it ties into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, if I'm talking about anger, I immediately, when I came to this passage, thought, okay, well, Immediately, topical sermon on anger, because the Bible has a lot to say about it. We just quoted, I think, two references there. But there, I mean, it's all through the Proverbs uh, extensively. The, David talked about it in the Psalms. I mean, anger is all through. There's examples of, of anger. I think immediately uh, King Saul always comes to mind. First one of letting his anger get the best of him. Uh, there's, there's just anger all throughout the Bible. And if we were to study the topic, we would find all different sorts of insights but here it's addressed in the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is all about God changing you from the inside out. It starts with the Beatitudes and about blessed are the poor in spirit. God's dealing with the inside. He's dealing with who you are. He's talking about being merciful. He's talking, he's talking about being meek. He's talking about being a peacemaker. About all the things that have to happen on the inside of you before God can use you in, in regards to dealing with other people. And that change is enormous when you start to look at it line by line, verse by verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been doing that on Sunday mornings at North Brooklyn Baptist Church. And the more we get into it, the more we see that God is trying to regulate every part of our lives, not just our outward actions. Go to church, read your Bible. Da, 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 da. No, it's, it goes much deeper than that. He's trying to change who we are, our character. He is trying to change. Why is he trying to change it? So we can be usable. You see, that's what Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, let your good, um, uh, okay, let me just look at it so I don't, get it, I don't get it wrong. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your what? Good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Well, how do we get the, how do the good works happen? They first happen when there's light. Let your light so shine before men. So there's light, there's inward change within you. And that leads to good works and the good works 
are not used to people can say, wow, that guy's got it going on. That lady's got it together. So they can say, wow, look what God did to them. I used to remember how they were before. And man, God changed that person's life. You see, being a Christian isn't about being a perfect person. It's about being a forgiven person. And the greatest tool you have in your apologetic arsenal in dealing with other people is not your great arguments that you have. It's not your great debating skills, although all those things uh, certainly have their place. But the greatest and the most effective uh, tool that you have in reaching people for Christ is the change that's happening in your own life through the Word of God, through God changing you, through your obedience to it. And as you live it out in your life, you know, somebody said, and maybe it's a little cliche, but I think it's still true then you may be the only Bible that some people ever, ever read. But I wonder what they're going to think about it when they only see anger, when they see people, someone flying off the handle at every trivial thing going on. Now, you say, Brother Mike, how can you be a New Yorker and not have a little bit of anger? <laughs> well, remember, when you decided to be a follower of Christ, when you turned your heart and your life over to him, you lost your identity. Jesus said, if you want to find yourself, lose yourself. If you want to find life, lose your life. That you're, you're supposed to be abide in him. And part of that is giving up whatever, however you use anger in your life to get your own way. Part of that is surrendering that to him. And saying, God, if I have to seem weird, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to experience that change. I'm willing to learn from you. So the more we get into the Sermon on the Mount, the more I realize that it's all about choices. It's all about choices. See, God wants to transform you, but you have to choose to receive that transformation. God wants the Word of God to make a difference in your life, but you have to want that for yourself. That, that choose you this day who you will serve, it, it, it goes much further than that. It goes all the way back to the garden. You see, Eve was deceived. Adam had a choice. And although she went through the process of looking at that, uh, of deception, of, God, of seeing the fruit... And desiring the fruit and ultimately taking the fruit, when she came walking up to Adam with it, there, that process was not there. He knew who she was. He knew what was in her hand. He knew exactly what he was about to do. And he made the wrong choice. And I, I find it great in God's sovereignty and his wisdom that he does give us choices in life. He gives us a choice. And every time that we are tempted to, to lash out in anger, we have a choice. Settling the fallout of anger should be the goal of every Christian. That's not, those aren't fun times in our life, are they? When we have to go and say, I'm sorry. I went off the handle. You know, the hardest time to say that is to your kids. <laughs> you say, kids, mommy got angry. No, just kidding. <laughs> so I think she stepped out, so I'm okay. But when you have to humbly come to them and say, I shouldn't have said that. That's not what a Christian should do. God doesn't treat us that way. And we shouldn't treat us, each other that way either. Because we're supposed to be a reflection of him. And he illustrates how we can settle the fallout of anger right here in our passage. He gives us two illustrations. The first one he mentions is being in the act of worship. And when you're there in the temple, the, it's, it's a focused sort of worship. There's no phone to remind you of the 110 things you got going on. 
You're there for a reason. You're not just, you don't just to go, get to go in there at any time. Your time has been appointed and set, and you've gone through a long, expensive process to get in there by way of offering sacrifice, something that was valuable to you. And you finally get to the altar, and it's the most important time. It's the time where no cell phone should be going off, where you shouldn't have anything else going on in your mind, and you put forth all this effort to get to that altar. And while you're there asking God for forgiveness, in your mind creeps up the angry action that you've laid on somebody else, the harmful words you've spoken in haste, the person that you know things aren't right with. And God says in that moment where you shouldn't be focused on anything else, if that thought enters your mind, just leave the sacrifice, leave the offering there, get up and go make things right. Because as important as it is to be there at that altar, it's more important to be right with your brother. Get that taken care of first, then get back and, and get things taken care of with God. And in, in essence, you're, doing, you're taking care of things with God in both, in both ways. Your religious action can be soured when things aren't right because of anger. And the second illustration he gives is being on the way to court. You're on the way to court. You're on the way, maybe you're being sued. The idea maybe there is that you've done something wrong and you know it. And this anger has created a situation where instead of being reconciled, instead of making things right, now things have gotten so out of hand that you're actually on your way to court to stand in front of a judge. Wow, things have really gotten out of hand. I, I don't, nobody likes being sued, right? I mean, it's a horrible thing. And he says, when you're on your way to court, instead of thinking of all the ways you're going to get that person, instead of all the ways you're going to make a big defense for yourself, Instead of all the ways that you're going to think of how you are going to be the victor, just go to your accuser and, if it is possible, get it settled. Beg for settlement. Lose whatever you have to lose to not have to stand in front of the judge because if you don't um, get it settled right now before you stand in front of the judge, when you stand in front of the judge, then the consequences are going to be out of your control completely. That you're going to let this thing spiral and snowball to the point where the consequences are no longer in your control. When we have anger, angry actions, there is a window of opportunity for us to make things right. But once that window of opportunity closes, then the judgment comes and we can't control the consequences anymore. If we want to follow Christ, if we want to live the Beatitudes, then we're going to find that there's no room for anger in our lives. Now listen, I don't want you, this to mean that you're some sort of a pushover. That when things go wrong, and let's say you're the boss, <laughs> that now this means you can't discipline your employees. <laughs> no, not at all, Pastor Montoro. Uh, <laughs> definitely not at all. No, 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 no. What did Jesus do when he went into that temple and he saw the money changers? He saw the desecration of the house of prayer. He flipped over some tables. Righteous indignation. See, but that wasn't about belittling people. It wasn't about promoting himself even. It was about making things right. It was about making things right. In the end, good Christian character isn't to make you a better person. It's to make you a person that God can use to reach other people. The, one of the criticisms of Christianity by Muslims is that there's no law. There's not enough laws. Uh, so there's not enough laws governing our life. If you live in a country where there's the Sharia, then um, the, the government law 
controls every part of your, your life, including your religious life. And so one of their criticisms is, in Christianity, that there's not enough control over your life. So if you live in a country where there's Sharia, if you're right with the law, you're right with God. You understand what you're standing there? And we have Muslims in, in Greenpoint, too. We have two mosques. We're not caught up to you yet, but we'll get there. And, um, and that's one of the major criticisms they throw out there. And when they throw out that criticism, they, they admit their ignorance of the Sermon on the Mount. Because as you get into the Sermon on the Mount and you deal with how God wants to have control over your spirit and he wants to have control over, he wants you to be meek and he wants you to be merciful and he wants you to be pure in heart. That's covering quite a bit of your life, that your heart be completely pure, that he wants you to be a peacemaker, that he wants you uh, to be persecuted for righteousness sake, that he wants you um, to uh, give over all, all anger or the, the control of your emotions to him. And the list goes on and on and on. And there's prayer, there's fasting, there's giving all the things mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. When you give that all to him, then God's got complete control of your life. And he has much more, not just uh, outward control, but inward control, far, far more than any law of man or religious order. Amen. But if you think, well, you know, I was mad, but nothing will come of it. I'm okay. I didn't break any laws. But I hate to have to tell you, but you're acting like a Muslim. <laughs> you're saying, well, as long as I didn't get in trouble, then it's okay. A Christian doesn't think like that because a Christian's accountability goes far higher than any government, than any personal relationship, than even their spouse or even their church. Our accountability is to God. And God wants us as much as possible to seek reconciliation. Don't let your anger get to, you to a place where reconciliation is impossible. Because Jesus warns, and he uses, he uses very strong words in the text, that if we will not allow reconciliation to be possible, then we're going to get to a place where the consequences are completely beyond our control. How many fires started with just one little match, with one little cigarette butt? How many marriages destroyed? How many relationships broken? How many families ripped apart because of anger? When the problems that were there were actually very small. But emotions ran high, pride got in the way, no one was surrendered to God, and anger destroyed it all. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Their heads bowed and their eyes closed as the music begins. I've warned our church, talking to a crowd of eight or ten people, you're going to be angry with somebody in this church. And it sounds silly in a small group. <laughs> angry, we like each other here. Because we got that new church excitement. It's, it's almost a little immature. Hey, you got two people in the same room, you're going to have anger. You just, it happens. Your families are a perfect example. The neat thing about a family is sometimes we yell, we fight, we get angry. But we're family. We get it straightened out, we get it fixed. We get back together. At least that's what we're supposed to do. And in the Christian life, we have family. We have brothers. We have sisters. And sometimes we get angry. We got to deal with that. It happens between the pews. It doesn't just happen with the people out on the road, with our neighbors, our coworkers. Let's make sure we have things right in the house of God, with our family, the family of God. You're not, if, you're, if you're struggling with anger, you're not going to walk out of here and say, got that fixed. <laughs> I 
That's not what it's about. It's about a process happening in your life. Give yourself over to him. Let him have control. Then you can be used to shine your light before men. Pastor.